welcome back to the Bible Reading Challenge podcast. My name is Aaron Ventura, and this is episode three of our Reader's Guide to the Book of Revelation. Uh, Today we are in chapter three. So Revelation chapter three contains the last three letters to the seven churches, and more specifically to the pastor or bishop of each of those churches. Uh, James Jordan and other commentators have pointed out that although these are real historical churches in real geographic space and in time, they also uh, represent point to seven unique periods in redemptive history. So if you look at the letter addressed to the church at Ephesus, you'll see this mention of the tree of life. It points us to the Edenic period in the Garden of Eden. Uh, If you look at the section addressed to Smyrna, you'll see this mentioning of being thrown into prison for a time of testing. It calls back uh, our minds to Joseph in the patriarchal period from Abraham unto Moses. You get to Pergamos, and there is the mention of Balaam and Balak in chapter 2, verse 14. This is the wilderness period from Moses to David. You get to Thyatira, and there's this mention of Jezebel, and this is the kingdom period from David unto Elijah. You get to Sardis, now we're in chapter 3, and now we are in the remnant era from Elijah to Jeremiah, where they must strengthen the things that remain that are about to die. And then things do die. Remember, the temple was destroyed. The people are sent off into exile. But there is a prophecy that one day they will return to the land and be restored. And that's what the Philadelphia period is about, restoration. And that would be from basically Daniel unto the Maccabees. Then you have the church at Laodicea, and this is actually really the situation of apostasy in Jesus' own day. So from uh, the Maccabees unto Jesus, there is this threat, this warning that if you do not repent, you will be vomited out of the land. And Jesus mentions this in verse 16, that he will vomit you out of his mouth. So uh, let's summarize each letter, and then we'll just answer one common question about the timing of some of these events. And uh, if you have a specific question that I do not address here, I know there's lots of questions uh, that can come out of a chapter like this, uh, please do feel free to email me at aventura at christkirk.com, and I will do my best to either email you a a short response, or if I think it it merits doing a whole episode on it, uh, I will do that. All right, so Revelation chapter 3 verses 1 to 6 are addressed to the angel of the church in Sardis. And we really have to keep reminding ourselves that these letters are addressed to the angel, to the pastor, to the bishop of the church. And of course, the message is uh, to everyone because there's the refrain, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. So these are messages to, to the church, to the whole church at large. There's something for us all to learn from each of these messages. But in its uh, first instance, it is to the pastor of that uh, church in that region. So uh, Sardis is really the worst of the churches as far as its spiritual health goes. God says he knows the works of this pastor in Sardis. And while this pastor has the reputation for being alive, perhaps he's popular, well-known, he's actually dead. He is doing what people think are good works, but in God's sight, they are dead works. This idea of dead works appears twice in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 6.1 says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards uh, towards God. And then in Hebrews 9, 13 to 14, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, 
How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So what are dead works? Dead works are works of our flesh. This is all that we do in our sinful state. And even after we are baptized or we join the church or call ourselves a Christian, there are still sins in our life that we need to repent of. Those are the dead works we need to put off. So God is calling this pastor to repent when and really, it should be the pastor calling other people to repent. So it has really gotten very bad in Sardis. Uh, God says in verse 3, Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. This language of coming like a thief refers to the day of the Lord and Christ's coming to judge Israel. So just as Babylon fell seemingly suddenly to Cyrus of Persia in Daniel chapter 5, Jerusalem, who has now become just like Babylon, see Revelation 17, and is going to fall, if you are keeping watch, reading the signs of the times, if you had heard Jesus' teaching, you would know that this was eventually going to happen. However, if you are not watchful, if you're not paying attention, uh, this is going to catch you by surprise. One of the primary jobs of a pastor, of a shepherd, is to keep watch over the sheep, to protect them from danger, to anticipate what their needs are going to be, and to warn them if danger is coming. And so here, this pastor in Sardis is not paying attention. He's not being watchful. And so uh, Jesus, the chief shepherd, is calling this pastor to repent. So, uh, nations and empires can seem to fall suddenly, but it is only sudden to those who are not paying attention. If you are wise, if you are a watchman, you will know how to prepare. You will know how to see the cracks in the foundation. And this is what we see actually in the book of Acts. As some Jewish Christians, they sold their land, their property. They started liquidating their assets because they knew that within one generation, just like Jesus said, Jerusalem was going to become a war zone, a really bad place to live. So uh, real estate is all about location. And they realized this is not going to be a good location to own land. So they sold it, taking, doing some wise things according to Jesus' teaching. Now, despite the dead works of this pastor in Sardis and his church, Jesus says, you do have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. It says in Jude 1, 22 to 23, and on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So Christians are called to hate defiled garments. And what are defiled garments? They are dead works, sinful living, worldliness. And instead, they should seek to wash their garments in the blood of the lamb so that they can walk with Jesus in white. So our clothes, they represent our works. They are our life. Revelation 19.8 says of the bride adorned for her husband that the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So our clothes signifies to the world what our works are, whether they are works done in righteousness or works that are actually filthy rags. This is one of those amazing paradoxes of the gospel and that the only way that you can actually have clean white garments is through washing them in the red blood of the lamb. This is a great uh, paradox of how the gospel works. Lastly, there is this reward for those who overcome. And this reward is that they will not have their names blotted out of the book of life. And Jesus promises to confess their name before his father. 
Remember, the church at Sardis connects with the remnant era from Elijah to Jeremiah, where Israel is in exile. And at that time, there was no temple. They were trying to rebuild it. There was no priesthood. The priesthood had become defiled. And yet God promises in Zechariah 3 that he is going to remove the filthy garments of Joshua, the high priest. Zechariah 3, 2-5 says this, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. So the holiness and access that only the high priest had in Israel is now actually given to every single Christian who is in Christ. This is one of the great blessings of the new covenant, that the Holy Spirit clothes us, causes us to do good works. He cleanses us and turns us into living temples for the living God. Verses 7 to 13 are addressed to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. The church at Philadelphia connects with the Restoration Era from Daniel to the Maccabees. So after Ezra and Nehemiah rebuild the temple and Jerusalem, God says that Zerubbabel, who was the governor of the Jews at the time, is his signet ring. That's how the book of Haggai ends. And Zerubbabel is going to be the man who carries on the Davidic lineage, which will actually culminate in the birth of Jesus Christ. So he's mentioned in both Matthew 1 verse 13 and Luke 3 27 in the genealogy of Jesus. So Jesus begins this letter to the pastor in Sardis by declaring, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. These are quotations from Isaiah and Jeremiah, which prophesy of God's everlasting covenant with David. And although they were under foreign rule because of their sin, God is going to keep his promise to set a Davidic king upon the throne. This is why it's so important that Jesus was born as a son of David. Paul actually begins the book of Romans emphasizing this. He was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. That's Romans 1, 3 to 4. It is this Jesus, this son of God, who knows the works of this pastor and his church. And Jesus commends him for remaining faithful despite having very little strength. And he promises, he says this, I promise to make those who say they are Jews and are not to come and worship before your feet. That means God is going to make these Judaizers, these people who are persecuting the church in Philadelphia, to actually bow down and honor these Christians. In verse 10, Jesus continues his commendation of this pastor, saying that because he has persevered in the midst of persecution, he is going to be rewarded by being spared from the judgment that is about to come upon the whole world. So sometimes the reward for our perseverance is deliverance. God preserves us from great tribulation. However, sometimes we're like the church in Smyrna, whose reward for their perseverance is martyrdom with a crown of life coming after that. Jesus says this judgment, this tribulation is coming quickly. And so this pastor must hold fast to his crown, that is, his authority and his rulership with Christ. Uh, perhaps his crown could refer to his actual office as a pastor. So he should not resign. He shouldn't step down from leadership because things are hard, but he should stand firm. And Jesus says, if he does this, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. 
Finally, verses 14 to 22 are addressed to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, and Jesus rebukes this pastor at Laodicea for being lukewarm. He's neither cold nor hot, and so Jesus is going to vomit him out of his mouth. This idea of being vomited out of Jesus' mouth comes from a number of Old Testament passages where sinful nations are thrown out. They're literally vomited out of the land. Uh, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20. Uh, Peter Lightheart points out that when the great fish vomits Jonah out of the sea and onto the land, it is the image of a reverse exile, a promise that one day Israel is going to return to the land, which they eventually do. However, here in Revelation, Jesus is the land. He is going to vomit lukewarm Christians out of his body if they do not repent. That is, they're going to be excommunicated, kicked out from the body. And this contrasts with the promise he's going to give at the end to those who repent in verse 20, that if they repent, he will come and dine with those who are zealous. Regardless of our geographic location, Jesus is the dwelling place of the church. He is the land. And if we are lukewarm, he's going to kick us out of himself. When pastors and churches are unfaithful, God disciplines them. He suspends them from the Lord's Supper and eventually removes them from the body completely. That is the threat that hangs over Laodicea. This pastor in Laodicea thinks that he is rich, wealthy, and self-sufficient. But Jesus says that he is actually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And to prove this, Jesus challenges him to buy gold, white garments, and oil from him, something this pastor will be unable to do except by repenting. Jesus says he is rebuking and chastening this man because he loves him. Verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. And so the image of repentance here is one where Jesus is standing at the door knocking and we are to hear his voice, open the door, and let him in. This is not really a reference primarily to conversion where an unbeliever allows Jesus into his heart. It is primarily a reference to the hospitality of communion, of table fellowship that Christians enjoy with God on a regular basis. This pastor in church thinks that they are rich and wealthy. But what they lack is the most important thing, the actual presence of Christ and fellowship with him. So just as Paul tells the Corinthians who were sinning, it's not the Lord's Supper that you take, so also Jesus is calling this church to repent so that Christ's presence in communion can be restored. Those who overcome, Jesus says, will sit with him on his throne. And then the chapter ends with this refrain that we've seen over and over again, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, so there's a lot there for us to ponder and apply to ourselves and to our churches, and something that we should be prayerfully doing is asking God to convict us as we read uh, these verses. There's something from all of those eras, all of those churches that we can learn from. All right, well, let's go back now and answer just one question from verse three. And that question is, when did Jesus come as a thief? Jesus says throughout the Gospels that he is going to come like a thief in the night, with the application being that, well, you better be ready, be on guard, be watchful for this uh, coming in judgment that is about to happen. 
Uh, passages that describe this coming are Matthew 24, 43, Mark 13, 32 to 37, Luke 12, 39, Luke 21, 34 to 38, and then also 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Peter 3, and Revelation 16. So you can go look up all those different references and you'll see how there's a lot of very similar language. It, I believe those are all talking about the same thing. So uh, some people think that this coming like a thief refers to a future to us, second coming at the very end of history. But uh, that is wrong for a bunch of reasons. I'll give you just a few of them. Uh, number one, the context of the gospel passages refers to Christ's destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, you can go back to our eschatology series if you want more on that, especially the one on uh, the Olivet Discourse. Second, this command to be watchful for the coming of the Lord appears also in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 2 Peter 3, and it would make no sense for God to give those commands to the first century church if his coming like a thief was going to come thousands of years off in the future, not within their lifetime. People who believe in the perpetual imminence of Christ's coming, you think about that, perpetual imminence, that's a contradiction. It doesn't even make sense. Uh, people who believe that are doing violence to the text. That's not a biblical doctrine. It's not something that scripture teaches. Jesus cannot come at any moment. Uh, scripture is very clear that there are a number of things that have to happen first, namely the footstooling of all the nations that are going to uh, come in, the world being saved. And then at the end, 1 Corinthians 15 says, he will hand the kingdom over to the Father. Then there will be uh, the last judgment, the resurrection of the dead. A third reason is that the coming of Jesus Christ is actually described in the book of Revelation itself. So uh, in Revelation 16, 15 to 16, Jesus says this, behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. And then right after this, Revelation 18, 21 to 24, sets up the fall of Jerusalem, Babylon, with the same images that we find in the gospel. So, for example, Matthew 24 warns of the coming of the thief to break into the house, house, temple, temple of the Jews. And then Matthew 25 gives the parable of the ten virgins who had oil, they had lamps preparing for the bridegroom. And then Revelation 18 says of Jerusalem, the light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore, and the voice of bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. There is this warning, there is this call for them to come out of her, my people, lest you share in her judgment. And then what do you have in uh, the next chapter, Revelation 19? Well, you have Christ coming on a white horse, robe dipped in blood, to destroy the beast and false prophet and the enemies of God. So I believe Revelation itself describes this coming like a thief that Christ uh, prophesies upon those who are not watchful. That's really what the whole book is leading up to. And then here in Revelation 19, you see him coming, riding on a horse to destroy his enemies. A fourth and final reason that Christ's coming as a thief must refer to this first century judgment, and I alluded to this earlier, is that Psalm 110, Daniel 2, Isaiah 9, 1 Corinthians 15, and other places describe Christ's kingdom as one that is continually increasing until it fills the entire world. So if you look around right now, uh, there's not very many Christian nations. I don't see the kingdom of Christ everywhere permeating the whole world, but that is what is prophesied, that one day, the uh, knowledge of the Lord is going to cover the whole world like the water covers the sea. So until that saturation happens, until that kingdom saturation happens on this earth, uh, Jesus is not going to return. 
And so history ends with a completely Christianized, saved world, not with it being burned up by fire. That burning up of the old world that is described by 2 Peter 3 and other places, that took place as Christ dismantled the cosmos in the first century. Well, that is chapter three, and up next we'll be in chapter four, looking at the throne room of heaven. If you have questions, please do email them to me. And until next time, keep on reading.